So anyway, if, if you're joining us for the first time, I want to let you know that we're in the middle of a sermon series called um, My Money's on David. And we've been talking about the classic story of David and Goliath. Um, spoiler alert, David wins. Um, that's why my money's on David, because uh, uh, he's, he's the champion there. But we're really talking about not just a historical story of David and Goliath, even though that is interesting. Um, what's even more important is the David uh, that is us and the Goliath that we often face. And so all of us are going through um, some struggles. All of us are facing enemies. All of us are facing something. And um, uh, we want to be victorious. And so this, this sermon series, we've been doing it for three weeks now. And we're going to go today. And then next week, we're going to wrap it up. But it's really been pretty awesome for me just to have a chance to dig into the story of David and Goliath. Because, you know, I mean, like I've never actually preached on a sermon series on David and Goliath before. And so it's one of those things that if you're a preacher, um, it's just, it's kind of like a kid in the candy store, actually, because um, it basically preaches itself, you know. Like, if you can't preach David and Goliath, you should probably find something else to do with your life. Um, you should just give up, because uh, it's so easy, and it's so wonderful just to dig into one of the classic stories uh, from Scripture and to see some, some, some ancient truths. Um, we're, I'm taking a lot of the, the information um, and the direction of the sermon series from a book by Malcolm Gladwell, who's not necessarily a Christian author. He's, he's a sociologist, and I read his book about a year and a half ago, and it really just impacted me. So many fascinating um, facts and stories from his book. Um, and so you're going you're gonna to hear a few of those um, stories in, in the message today. But let's jump right in. We started off week one with um, My Money's on David because he is anointed. Um, and anointing is a church word, but it basically means that the Holy Spirit was with him, that, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we talked about how important it is if you're going to face giants in life, which, by the way, we're all going to face giants. Um, so even if you're not a Christian today, even if you're just exploring, you're just curious about Christianity, um, this message still applies to you because I guarantee you're facing something in your life. I guarantee you feel like a David sometimes in the battlefield of, of your life. And, and the truth is that when we are, when we are children of God, when, when we're uh, filled with his spirit, his spirit actually fills us and enables us to do what we couldn't do on our own. And so he enables us to defeat giants. And by the way, being anointed means that the Holy Spirit fills you. But this happens before the fight. This happens in the secret place. This happens when nobody's looking. This happens when it's just you and God and, and David's uh, context. It was just him and uh, his sheep and God. And, and there was this amazing moment with Samuel where, where, where Samuel said, I've come to anoint you. And so just like Samuel was sent to anoint David, God has sent his Holy Spirit to anoint us. And so um, if you missed that sermon, it was awesome. And the recording didn't work, so it's not on podcast. So you missed it. Um, it's just a little plug for, you know, come to church if you want to hear this sermon. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, we do typically record podcasts. That particular week, the devil got in the system and just shut it down. Uh, but, uh, but this week, hopefully the podcast is working. But last week's sermon, the podcast was working and, uh, we talked about my money's on David because he was faithful. And, um, we talked about the faith of David and that's great. And, and it's good to have faith and, and, and faith will help us defeat the giants in our life. But if you really, if you, if you really look at the story, of David, he didn't just have faith, he added fullness to it. So faith plus fullness, faithfulness, is what will bring victory in your life over giants that you're facing. 
And this week, we're going to just kind of continue some of that thought. I, I ended last week, and, and as usual, I have more to say than I have time. And so um, the wonderful thing about being the pastor is you can just, you know, push it on to next week. So we're going to be preaching still from the faithfulness of David and the fearlessness of David, the fearlessness that he learned in the wilderness, that he learned um, out in the field that prepared him for the fight. And so we're going to be looking at um, five secret weapons that you and I have uh, against the giants of our lives and, um, and, how, and how we can put those to work for us. But first, let's read the passage of Scripture here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verse 17 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, we have a giant Bible up on the screen. It says, Then Jesse um, said to his son David, uh, Take now for your brothers uh, an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp. Now his brothers were out with the armies of Israel. They were soldiers, and they were the ones who were at, at a stalemate with Goliath at this point. Uh, and, and David's dad said, hey, you know, you're not really doing much. You're just hanging around watching the sheep. How about you get some lunch for your brothers and, and take it out there to him. Carry, carry also 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand. So classic, you know, cheese and bread. See how your brothers are doing. Bring back news of them. Uh, now Saul and, uh, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David got up early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going uh, out to fight and shouting for battle. That's kind of an interesting little detail there. Scripture tells us that, that not only were they going out to fight, but they were shouting. They were making noise. Like they're, they're, they're getting fired up. Verse 21 says, Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper and ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as the, he talked with him, there was, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name. Now next week I'm going to uh, finish this sermon series by looking at Goliath. Uh, my money's on David uh, next week. My money's on David because he understood his enemy, because he actually was the only one in this crowd that actually knew who his enemy was and why his enemy was there. And it's important that you understand your enemy. And so I, I've been finding some fascinating stories and things about Goliath and about his history, where he came from. And so I'm going to have fun preaching that next week. By the way, next week is short Sunday. So... Um, it's only going, service is going to be short, so it's going to be an hour long, and we're all going to be wearing shorts, so, um, and we have a short pastor, so, you know, if, it's a short Sunday, and uh, uh, we just thought it'd be fun to throw in a little summer fun, and then after short Sunday, we're going to have our typical um, uh, church membership class, and then after that, I think, did we say 2.30 or 3? Three? I think 3 o'clock, we are meeting... Um, <laughs> we need a little help up here. Uh, at about three o'clock, we're meeting for a church picnic and river baptism. So um, we'd love for y'all to join us for that. If you want to be baptized, by the way, just let us know and we'll be ready for you or just show up and we will baptize you in the river. Um, so that's going to be happening in beauty. You should have received a little handout for that. Um, but we're, we're, we're going to be uh, looking at short Sunday next week. So I'm, so I'm going to have to keep it short when I talk about Goliath. Um, and he spoke, well, come on, somebody. <laughs> so it's going to only be three hours, so it's going to be a short sermon. That's what I'm talking about. Um, coming up from the armies of the Philistine, and David spoke, uh, according, or, 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 no, hold on, Goliath is in battle array. Goliath comes out the champion. 
Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words that he had been speaking previously. He was challenging the armies of Israel. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw this man, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. And that's part of what we're going to talk about next week. The, Goliath had a bit of a history. Um, there's a reason for them to be dreadfully afraid uh, of this man. He was, he was more than just your typical giant. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it will be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches and will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Now David is about 16, 17 years old at this point, so he hasn't paid taxes, so that doesn't mean a whole lot. But apparently Saul's daughter, daughter was pretty hot, so that's pretty cool. And he's, and he's look, otherwise he wouldn't, have, she wouldn't, he wouldn't have given her away as a prize, you know, if she was not. So anyway, he's says, uh, man, you get to marry good-looking daughter of the king, and you get free of taxes for, for life. So David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, uh, come again? What's that? What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And then he asked a question, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I dare you to say that to somebody this week, just in general conversation. <laughs> who is this uncircumcised Philistine? could get awkward that he should defy the armies of the living god verse 27 the people answered him in the same manner saying so shall it be done for the man who kills him now eliab uh david's oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men and eliab's anger was aroused against david and he said why did you come down here and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness i know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you have just come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? It's a little brother rivalry, sibling argument here. What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward, toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Uh, I want to spend a little time talking about the fact, first of all, my money's on David because he knew who to fight find it interesting that David comes down. He's delivering food. He's delivering lunch. And Eliab is like, you know, he takes the lunch. He's like, why did you come down here? I don't know, maybe to bring you lunch. Maybe that's, 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 that's just being nice. And it's so often the case that the people closest to us are the ones who are most, sometimes can hurt us the most. Uh, Eliab starts accusing David. He says, I know your heart. Don't you love people like that? I just love people who just know my heart. And just know exactly what I'm thinking. They're, they're, they're kind of on level with God, I guess. You know, the whole omniscience thing, like they got it. They don't have the other stuff that God's got, but they are omniscient. They know my heart. They know what's going on in my mind. And, 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 and it's always like, you know, like, like it's somebody close to David. David's, David's brother. He says, look, I know your heart. I know what's going on in your mind. And then he accuses him. He says, you're just, you're just, you're, you're, you're just prideful. You're just full of pride. You're just thinking about yourself. And, and, and what I love about David is that David doesn't fall into the trap of fighting with his brothers. This is a good lesson for us Christians. We shouldn't fight with our brothers. You got, you got to know who to fight. You have to, my money's on David because he, he knew who to fight. Really, he could have, he, he, you know, he, he could have, you know, decked his brother right then and there, right? Because obviously his brother sees, sees David. Now, now, this is what's interesting. What I love about David is he's got passion, right? Like David shows up and he's there for like, you know, just a few minutes and he's already asking the kind of questions that guys who had been there for 40 days were not asking. 
They, the, the whole army had been there for 40 days. Goliath had been challenging them every single day. They, they lined up in battle array. They got ready to fight, and they started shouting like they're, 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 they're fired up, and which could be a good sermon point that sometimes shouting is not the same as passion. But anyway, come on, somebody. Uh, you can be shouting and not really have passion. They're shouting. They're ready to go to war until Goliath shows up again, and then they, they scurry like, you know, like cockroaches when, when you turn the lights on. Like they're, 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 they're hiding. They're, they're, they're getting back. They're getting away. And David says, wait, wait a minute. Like, 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 why is this guy stopping us? Why is this guy in our way? Why can't we take him down? David has passion. He has real passion. He's not necessarily the one shouting, but he's the one who's passionate for um, the glory of God and for the kingdom of God in the earth. And he says, wait a minute. This uncircumcised Philistine should not stand in our way. And in 40, basically 40 minutes, he, he comes to the conclusion the guys for 40 days could not come to. So I love people with passion. I love, we have some people of passion here in City Chapel, and I just think that's awesome. I'd rather have people of passion, and you have to kind of redirect them a little bit every once in a while. Uh, like, like Rick today, he started setting stuff up that we, were, we, we, we changed setup a little bit. He, he was just going at it. And I said, well, Rick, actually, you know, we're not going to set up there. We're going to set up over here. But I love people who just start doing stuff, you know, uh, instead of it's so much easier to sort of redirect people with passion than to try to fire up people and get them motivated. You know, I don't I don't I don't do well with that. People who are passionate, people are ready to go. I'm like, awesome. We will we will help direct you to a place. And so I just love people with passion because it's people like like David that, that they step into a scenario and they say, something's not right here. We got to do something about this. But often people with passion face accusations that people say, oh, I know your heart. I know what's really going on. And, and it's often the people closest to us. And so I want to encourage you that one of the greatest ways that you can avoid um, uh, uh, getting shut down and missing the, the call that God has on your life is to not fight with your brothers, to not fight with those. Because uh, Honestly, oftentimes the fight with brothers or the fight between people that you're close to, it's really not about the thing that God is concerned about. Um, Ro and I, in our, in our marriage, we, um, as, as a dating couple, we kind of had a, a fun dating relationship because we were both a little bit older when we got together. I was 25 and she was a little bit older than that. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, so we had both lived on our own for a while. We kind of, you know, we had routines. We had ways of doing stuff. And we wanted to know if we were compatible. And so we were very open about things that bothered us. And, and it turns out that's actually a great thing for marriage too, by the way. Um, so in our dating relationship, if, if she said something or if I, or if I didn't do something, you know, whatever, it, we, would, we would always talk about it. We kind of had this rule that we're always going, if something's bothering you, even if it's stupid, we're going to talk about it and then say it's stupid maybe and walk on, you know. Um, but. But, you know, but it's, it's coming handy in marriage. And one of the one of the rules that we have whenever we whenever we talk about stuff that, that's bothering us is that we're always allowed. The other one is always allowed to ask um, about the motive. And so what that means is I may hypothetically, totally hypothetically, this never happens. But in a in a in a world far, far away in a time and space, I may get frustrated with something that Roe does or or doesn't do hypothetically. And I may uh, talk to her and say, honey, you know, when you said that, that hurt my feelings or hypothetically, you know, what, whatever. And then, and then she is able to discuss it though. Like you're not, you like, you can't just unload on somebody. 
Like that's that's kind of our rule in our marriage. Like we can't just unload on each other. Like you know you you really you really hurt me there. So you know say you're sorry. You know like that's not really how it works. It has to be adult discussions that take place. So if I say you hurt me when you did that, then she has to also engage in the conversation and 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 we talk it out. One of the questions that she's allowed to ask me is, well, is it is it is, are, you know were you hurt because what I said was wrong or what I did was wrong or are you hurt because what I did was an inconvenience? to you. Well, got quiet up in here. <laughs> because yeah, the Bible says we are to love. That's agape. That's putting the other first. So sometimes it's okay to be inconvenienced by the person that you are committed your life, that you've committed your life to. And so uh, that kind of helps settle some things in the discussion. You know, is it, are you, are, is it, was this wrong or did it, did it just mean that your life was a little more difficult this morning? And, um, and it's, not that, it's, not, it's not that she, it's not that we don't want to work that out as well, but we always have the freedom to question the motive. And I would encourage you to question your own motive when, with regard to who you're fighting. Um, David could have gotten to a fight with his brother, but it would have been to preserve his own dignity. It would have been to preserve his own reputation. It would have been, well, no, 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 that's not why I'm here, but I came to bring you cheese and crackers, okay? You know, like, like, like you know, the very people that I'm trying to help, they're the ones who are accusing me, and so I've had enough of this. You know, that's the way it could have went down. But instead, David kept his, his eyes on the goal. He kept his eyes on the enemy. He knew who to fight. And by the way, uh, having an enemy is, is, is actually something that all of us have. We all have an enemy. Um, I've been teaching our kids about it, teaching our kids about the devil, teaching our kids about the enemy of our souls, who the Bible says is roaming around trying to see who he can devour, trying to see who he can consume. And so we all have an enemy. And actually, um, having an enemy is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, there's, there's something called desirable difficulty. And uh, we were actually just talking about this this morning. Uh, I meet a couple guys for coffee before, uh, before we come to church here to set up. And we were talking about how the way that they were raised, um, <laughs> right? Uh, Myron, the, the, way, the way Myron was raised, he was, he was, he was put to work. At his, in, his, in his household, like uh, his dad up in Arkansas, like he just, he just ran a really tight ship. And man, uh, many of us were raised in this, in this, in this environment where we were, man, we were, we were put to work. I, I was 10 years old. I had to mow the lawn. Like my parents were just like, you're mowing the lawn. I don't want to mow the lawn. Well, you're mowing the lawn. So <laughs> you want to eat? You want to sleep in the house? You're mowing the lawn. So, okay, well, I'm mowing the lawn, you know? And I hate mowing the lawn, by the way, just so you know. Some guys find it enjoyable. My brother found it enjoyable. That's, he's sick and twisted in the head. And it's not, like, it's hot. You're pushing this thing. You smell like gas afterward. That's the worst part, you know? Um, anyway, gasoline fumes everywhere. So, but, 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 we, but we, we, we talked about how in our, our, in, in our generation, this, this is kind of what happened. And it was difficult, and there was, there was hard times. And she's going through some hard times right now. Um, oh, I got an amen from hard times. It's tough being a kid. Come on, somebody. But in today's age, it's a little bit different, you know. And, um, I mean, we didn't have a whole bunch of video games when I was little. We had Super Mario Brothers when I turned seven, and so that was pretty awesome. But um, beyond that, you know, the whole, like, uh, all, just all cell phones, iPhones, iPads, all the kind of thing, we didn't have that. And so, you know, we just kind of, we, we, we had to be outside all the time and all that kind of thing. And so we were talking about just the difficulty of raising kids, trying to get the same work ethic that we were given, 
in a different generation, in a different age. How does, how does that work? How does that happen? Because we noticed that actually the difficulty that we faced as kids really helped us, really helped us get a work ethic that was positive, really helped us um, in life, really helped us become entrepreneurs, helped us start things, and, and gave us the courage to do stuff that maybe we wouldn't have done had we not tried and failed a few times. You know? And so there's, there's a, there, there is a bit of desirable difficulty. There's some things that you face in life that, that are difficult, but it's not always necessarily bad. And um, in, in the, uh, just in, in the eve of World War II, London, of course, was, was close to Germany. They were prime targets um, for the German bombers. And Winston Churchill described London as the greatest target in the world. He said it's kind of a tremendous, fat, valuable cow tied up to attract the beast of prey. And he predicted, actually, that the city would be so helpless in the face of these attacks that between three and four million Londoners would flee to the countryside. They would, they would just get out of the city. In 1937, on the eve of the war, the British military command issued a report with this prediction that they said a sustained German bombing attack would leave 600,000 people dead, 1.2 million wounded, and would create mass panic in the streets. They said that it would be hard for the soldiers to actually fight the war because they would be so busy dealing with the hysteria of, of civilians living basically in a war zone. And, and they, 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 they'd never experienced this kind of warfare before. So they were, the think tank got together, and they even decided that they were going to build an underground um, bunker system. But they scrapped the idea because they, they figured that once people went down into the bunker system, they would never come back out. That the kind of fear, the kind of anxiety that would grip the hearts of people would be so great. And that's why they, that's why they created those posters. You've seen the posters, uh, Keep Calm and Carry On. That's why they created the, the posters, because they said, we really need to tell people just to chill out, you know, like don't worry, because there's nothing they could do. And so uh, in the fall of 1940, the long-anticipated attack began over a period of eight months, beginning with 57 consecutive nights of bombardment. 57 consecutive night German bombers thundered across the skies above London, dropping tens of thousands of high-explosive bombs and more than a million incinerary devices. 40,000 people were killed in that time, 40,000. And another 46,000 were injured. A million buildings were damaged or destroyed. But their predictions of the hysteria and the panic was completely off. Actually, they found quite the opposite. Uh, sociologists would be driving. One sociologist wrote that as he was driving down the street, the air raid uh, sirens were going off, right? The Germans are coming, and they're dropping bombs on neighborhoods and on cities. And, and the sirens are going off, and kids are still playing out in the street. And shoppers are still going from one building to another. Uh, there was one nun that was hurt, kind of trying to scurry a, a child off of the street. But for the most part, people were just going about their lives, almost indifferent to the, the, the danger that they were in. And so they began to realize that people respond to tragedy in different ways. Uh, there are three different types of people that were affected by these bombs. First of all, the most tragic are those who were killed. And for those people, obviously, it is devastating. Um, their life has ended. But, but they did report, somewhat callously, that for those people, they're not able to, to um, produce fear in others because they're dead. And so they don't, you know, dead people don't create hysteria. They're, they're, just, they're just gone. 
uh, 46,000. Well, there's 8 million people in London at the time. And, and so if you look at the number of 46,000, that's actually a small number compared to the amount of people that were there. And only about 40-some thousand people were directly affected by the bombing, so they were injured in a blast. And they found that they, they, they called those near misses. So if someone was near a bomb and some shrapnel you know, uh, came off and, and injured them or hurt them in some way, they, they did find that those people were, were very um, affected very traumatically. Uh, sort of PTSD kind of issues that, that they would have great fear, great anxiety, nightmares, that kind of thing. But they found that the, the overwhelming majority of Londoners were in the other category of what they called remote misses. So if you were near a bomb, if you were next door, say, to a house that was bombed, and you lived through it, you, were, you hunkered down in the basement or whatever, and you came out alive, they found that once you lived through what you feared so greatly that you were infused with the kind of courage that you never had before. One lady in her diary, she was, she was next door to, to uh, her house was shaken by the bombings. She said, I lay there feeling indescribably happy and triumphant. She said, I've been bombed. I kept saying this to myself over and over and over again, trying the phrase on like a new dress to see how it fitted. I've been bombed. I've been bombed. Me. It seems a terrible thing, she said, to say when many people were killed and injured last night, but never in my whole life have I ever experienced such pure and flawless happiness. There's something about people, there's something about the fear of fear. <laughs> there's something about the fear of an event or the fear of an enemy that you don't even end up really seeing the enemy. All you can see is the fear that's gripping your heart over that. But when you face that enemy, when you survive that enemy, there is a degree of desirable difficulty that stirs up a kind of, of triumphant, um, almost resilience that became very characteristic of the British people. And not only is that true for them, but that's, they, they found that to be true, sociologists found that to be true throughout the world. And I believe it's also true spiritually, that God will allow enemies into your life in order for you to be sort of nearby the bombing or near and allow your house to be shaken and for you to come out the other side and say, I survived, I, I was attacked, I went through this, I went through that, and I came out the other side. And because of that, I'm so much stronger, right? You've heard people say that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's kind of where that saying came from that they see people who go through stuff and they come out so much stronger on the other end. And so oftentimes what God is trying to do when he allows an enemy to come into your life is he's trying to raise up a fearlessness inside of you to face the greater enemy that's coming down the road, the Goliath that you're about to face. And, and I just want to encourage you to know who to fight, but also to know how to fight. And we talked about, um, we talked about the kinds of warriors that there were uh, in ancient times. There was, uh, there was the hand-to-hand -hand combat warriors, and we had a little uh, picture. I think it was a flannel graph picture of Goliath right there flexing his muscle. These guys were, were, were um, for those of you that weren't in church in the 80s, flannel graph is the bomb, all right? Like, that's, that's what it's all about. And um, when we got rid of that, we lost the Holy Ghost in, uh, in our services because we don't find Bible stories come to life on flannel graph. Anyway, um, David, uh, you know, G Goliath is a hand-to-hand -hand combat guy, so he's going to be heavily armored. He's going to be probably uh, beefy, you know, kind of like a front lineman, and he's going to be able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with people. He's going to be within arm's reach, and he's going to take you out. The, the second kind of fighter in the ancient world were, were the cavalry or the, the horsemen. Uh, these guys would come in on, on, on horses, and they would, they would kind of swoop in almost like the Air Force, and they'd just take people out just kind of from the top of a horse and, and, and help out. They would, they would really assist assist 
the hand-to-hand combat guys. But the third kind, which is the kind uh, that David was, David was a slinger, and slingers were sort of the snipers of the ancient world. And so they would have a, a thing of twine or a thing of leather, just one strap, and they would put a rock, a stone in the middle of it, and they would begin swinging it around, literally about six to seven revolutions per second. And when they released that stone, it was, it was similar, the velocity of the stone being released was similar to a medium-sized modern handgun. And so when you look at the fight in this way, you understand that God had prepared David for this kind of fight. That Goliath was this big, bulky guy who was slow, and if he could get his hand on you, you're toast. But God had already equipped David with a weapon that he didn't need to get hands on anybody. Um, Irish slingers uh, back in the day were able to hit birds from as far as 200 yards away. That's two football Two football fields stacked end to end. I can barely see a bird from there. But they could, they could take out birds. And so their, their accuracy was so incredible. So when David steps onto that field, he knows that he doesn't even have to get near Goliath. He can take him out before Goliath can barely even see, see David. God had set David up for the fight by giving him what he needed to defeat the enemy before he even had an enemy. And so what I want to talk to you about for the next few minutes are the things that God has given you to defeat enemies that you maybe not even realize that you have, but they are the secret weapons of life. Number one, the first secret weapon that you and I have as believers, especially as members here of City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the secret weapon of community, the secret weapon of Christian community. Christian community is a secret weapon to defeat a giant, especially of addiction in your life. If you're facing a giant of addiction, I encourage you, I I plead with you, get in Christian community. It's a secret weapon. So often people who face addictions, they they, they think the secret weapon is more willpower. But the thing about addiction, the giant of addiction, is it conquers your willpower. (laughs) I mean, the very thing that it conquers is your willpower. And so if you think that it's like rock, paper, scissors, right? So scissors beats paper, paper beats rock, and rock beats scissors. Uh, Well, a a giant, a hand-to-hand combat guy is is like paper, and a slinger is like scissors. So a slinger is going to beat him. But if you look at addiction, addiction is like a rock, (laughs) and your, your willpower is like scissors. You are going to get beat by addiction every single time. The answer is not more willpower. The answer is not, I mean, willpower is good. It's good to make a resolution and try to stick with it. But the answer, the secret weapon that you have is Christian community, because the giant of addiction will defeat you in the dark. That's where you get defeated, when it's just you and him. It's hand-to-hand, toe-to-toe. You don't want to stand toe-to-toe with this giant. You don't want to stand toe-to-toe with the giant of addiction, because if you do, he will defeat you. But what defeated you in the dark will be defeated by the light. When you bring it out of the dark, when somebody else knows your secret, that's where you can have some help. And what defeated you when you were alone, you can defeat when you are in Christian community. That's why we have small groups. I mean, you know, like really, that's why we have small groups for for us to be able to defeat giants in our life together. I mean, I know you got a lot of things going on in in your day and in your week, and you don't need one more thing to attend. You don't need another activity. There's dance and there's 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 soccer and there's there's just a bazillion things going on. But we think that Christian community is so important that really you can even cancel some of those things in order to engage in Christian community because it'll help you defeat the giants of your life. And busyness will not help you defeat the giants of your life. Community will help you defeat giants. 
And so I want to encourage you, step into community. If you've been being defeated over and over again, it could be because you're trying to do it alone. There's a secret weapon that you have as a Christian, as a believer, and it is Christian community. Secondly, the second stone that, that, that God offers us is peace. Peace defeats the giant of anxiety and depression. There's a, there's a passage of scripture, and I've asked him to, to put it up. It's found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And uh, we have the King James Version, because this is the classic version that, that I grew up reading. It says, And the peace of God which passeth, I like that, passeth, all understanding will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, oftentimes, let's just leave that scripture up there. Oftentimes, when the reason why I did King James, because this is the way I grew up reading it, and this is the way I grew up hearing it preached, that the peace of God that passes, or passeth, it passeth like it passeth over something. Like it jumps over, it passes over your understanding. Like, like and you, you, you hear it say that, you know, you'll just, you'll, you, you won't even understand it. Like peace will just come into you. And so that's what we've prayed for. You know, God, just fill them with peace. They don't even understand it. Just bam, it hits them. And God does that sometimes. It's awesome. Especially in worship, in the presence of God, you might not even understand how you're feeling peace, but you start feeling it. That's the kind of peace that you feel. That's good. But the kind of peace that conquers the giants in your life is not the kind of peace that you simply feel. It's the kind of peace that passeth (laughs) all understanding. The word pass doesn't mean to go over, to fly over, or jump over. It it means actually to sit on top of. (laughs) That's a little different than passive to me, but it means to sit on top of. In other words, the peace that God gives, the kind that defeats the giant of anxiety in your life, is the kind that doesn't skip over your understanding. Rather, it's the kind that focuses on your understanding. Some of us, we're one moment of understanding away from really living in peace. There's just something that you're going to get and it's going to, you're going to understand it and bam, suddenly you're going to have peace. God doesn't you know, jump over your brain. He doesn't ask you to check your brain out the door. Rather, the kind of peace that conquers giants is the kind that God gives that comes to your understanding and says, I'm going to focus. I'm going to sit right here and talk to you. I'm going to talk to your understanding. And it means to sit on top of in a place of authority. And so when you submit what you understand to the peace of God, that's when the peace of God guards your, the door of your heart. It's like the bouncer to your brain, right? And, and what you see with your eyes, everybody's looking at the same giant, but only David had this understanding of, hey, wait a minute, this guy's got to go. This guy can go. I have what it takes to get this guy. That's the peace of God that guards your heart. And I would encourage you to allow the peace of God to, to guard. In other words, to be the, 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 the guard at the door, the bouncer at the door that says, doubt, you're not allowed in here. Fear, you're not allowed in here. Anxiety, you're not allowed. Sorry, we're not going to, you're just not a welcome guest in my mind, in my brain. I'm not going to dwell on you. And it, and it keeps those thoughts out. Thirdly, the stone of prayer. We've been given a secret weapon of prayer as Christians. And prayer is not something that you do when you're desperate. Prayer is something that you do in order to not get to a place where you're desperate. Prayer is your daily bread, your communion with God. Prayer is the heartbeat, actually, of this church. This church was birthed out of prayer. You say, well, well, it's prayer. Prayer is not just a list of things that you tell God that you want. Prayer is communion with God. If you walk out of a time of prayer and all you've done is told God what you want, then you haven't listened to what he wants. And 
That's what prayer is. Prayer is listening to him and, and communing with him and sitting with him. And so here at City Chapel, it's, it's, a, it's a foundation of who we are. We, the first small groups we ever started were prayer small groups, and we currently have two prayer small groups going on on Tuesday night. We also meet at 9 a.m. here. We call it Huddle. We gather together, and we pray. And I would just welcome you, if you, if you want to come a little bit early, come join us for prayer because prayer is so important. Prayer is where the battle happens. And you defeat the enemy in prayer before you ever meet the enemy in the field. Prayer is so important. And in August, we're going to be having a month of prayer. We're going to call it prayer and feasting because we're not really fasting, but we're going to be praying every single day. And uh, we don't have a building, so I'm going to be uh, probably in my, in, in my living room doing a webcam prayer meeting online. We just believe it's that important. So we're going to be talking a lot more about prayer, but you really, you need to establish a time of prayer in your life, a daily time for it. It's a secret weapon, it's a secret weapon over the giant, whatever giant that you may be facing. And number four, the sling or the, the stone of, of faith. Faith conquers the giant, really it conquers all giants, but in my life, it's especially conquered the giant of depression. And I've talked about that before where I was so, so wound up in, in my own thoughts and it was, it was just this, this funnel, this downward funnel, this downward cycle. And, and, and what I found is that I just had to step out of the ring. I just, I couldn't reason with myself because every time I did, I, I ended up at the same, the same broken conclusion. But faith comes in and says, even though I feel like I'm worthless, God says that I'm valuable. And I'm not, I, don't, I don't have to reason with that. I don't have to create logic for why I'm valuable. I don't have to create logic. It's just what God says. And so I'm just going to believe it. That's what faith does. Faith grabs a hold of what God says. And honestly, David defeated the giant because of faith in God. It wasn't just because of his slinging capabilities. It's because he had faith in God. And uh, uh, when I was growing up, uh, I always heard preachers say, uh, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. I hate to be the grammar Nazi, but uh, Risk is spelled R-I-S-K, uh, which is an awesome game, and I am pretty dominant in it. Um, if anybody wants a challenge, I've taken out the Joneses a few times. I'm, I'm moving on to better, bigger and better. Uh, anyway, uh, I love taking, out, taking over the world, I guess. It's just kind of a funny thing. <laughs> but Risk is Risky. Right, risk is something that may or may not happen. If you, if you, you know what risk is? Risk is the stock market. Risk is the slot machines in Vegas. Risk is something that could be up, could be down. Not really that sure. But faith in God is actually not risky at all. Faith in God is the most sure thing that you could possibly do. It's the most, it's the most rock solid thing. It's the least risky thing you can do. Now it might look risky, but it's not. It's not. If you believe what God has said, then you are absolutely 100% on solid ground. It's not risky. And so you need to figure out what God says, which, tell, which brings me to my fifth stone, which is uh, the stone of the Bible, the Word of God. You've got to hold on to the Scriptures. For a few reasons. Number one, Scriptures don't change. And uh, we're in a world that's changing rapidly. And things are moving and things are adjusting and shifting. But scripture doesn't change. It just stays the same. It's like, a, it's like, it's, it's like when you're in the ocean. You don't feel like you're moving. Well, the way I go in the ocean, I don't really get on a surfboard. I get on a floaty. And uh, I like to just, you know, kick back. And, and you're floating. You don't feel like you're moving, but you are. The waves are moving you. 
And you don't realize it until you see the buoy. It's like, I was a lot further away from the buoy, and now I'm a lot closer. I'm further from the shore. So you have to find something that's steady, something that doesn't change. And that's how you gauge whether or not you're changing. And Scripture doesn't change because it's written. It doesn't change. People's interpretation of it can change for sure. But, but the written word of God is so accurate and so, so, so consistent that in a changing world, it can be your foundation. It can be your source. But not only that, it's where you find out what God loves and what God likes and what God hates. And you find out what's coming. I always do Bible study with my kids. And last week, I started a Bible study on the book of Revelation. And it's very kid version, kid friendly. But my kids were like, Dad, tell us a scary story. I said, all right. <laughs> Note to self, it's not a good idea before bed to talk about these things. And I learned that. Um, but they just, they're just fascinated. And, I, and Madden, she's my six-year-old, she's been telling other kids, uh, do you know about the big fight that's coming? <laughs> and um, anyway, I, I use kid language. And, and, and I, to me, it's just refreshing for me as, as a Christian to know and to remind myself that we know how this whole thing ends. Not only that, we know how it develops. And so, and so I tell my kids, I said, okay, look, here's the deal. There's going to come a point in time in which people don't want to hear from Jesus anymore. People don't want to hear preaching. They don't want to hear, they don't want to hear what the Bible has to say because they don't think it's relevant to their life anymore. They want something new. They want something better and something bigger. And there's going to be a guy that's going to step up. He's going to do some pretty cool things. And he's called the Antichrist. And uh, that's kind of a a whole nother subject, but he's going he's gonna to convince everybody to follow him and not follow Jesus. And so I always say, well, guys, you know what we're going to do, right? Yeah, we're going to follow Jesus. I said, yeah, we're going to follow Jesus. And he's going to have a rule. You got to get, you gotta get a, a mark on your hand or in your forehead. And that's how he's going to know who's following him. And we're not going to get that mark because we're following Jesus. We're not, we're, we're sticking with, with, with the Bible because it doesn't change. And so the same thing that Jesus said 2,000 years ago, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to believe in. And, and so we're not going to follow that guy, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to follow that guy. And I said, really, it's, it's, it's actually a little, it's going to be difficult because if you, if you don't have that mark on your forehead or your hand, you're not going to be able to buy food from a grocery store. You're not going to be able to drive a car. You're not going to be able to live in a home. So what are we going to do, guys? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, we're going to go camping. That's what we're going to do. We're going to learn how to grow our own food. We're, you know, like seriously, what other option are we going to have? We're going to follow Jesus. Now, I do have to tell you, I am post-trib in my theology. So if you're pre-trib, things might be a little easier for you all. But for my kids, I'm just getting them ready just in case. <laughs> and we're going to go camping. We're going to live off the land. We're going to go hide somewhere. And God's going to take care of us. We're still going to tell people about Jesus. We're still going to have a church. I don't know, maybe like around our tent, campfire style. I don't know what's going to happen. But we're still going to tell people about Jesus. And I said, it's going to be good that we don't have that mark on us because some awful things are going to happen. And I started telling them about the, the giant scorpions that are going to come down with the head that's like a lion, a tail that stings people that have the mark on them, and, and, and the boils, and, and how an asteroid's going to hit Earth, and it's going to destroy a third of the water, and stuff's going to turn into blood. It's going to be, it's going to be you know, their, their eyes are just really big. And I'm, this is what the Bible says. I'm not making this stuff up. This is crazy stuff. I said, but you know what the sad part is? After all of that, the people that don't follow Jesus, they're, instead of changing they're going to blame the Christians. They're going to blame people that follow Jesus. They're going to get mad at us. And so they're going to try to put us in jail. They're going to, they're going to try to kill us. They're going to try to do that. And so we're going to have to run. We're going to have to hide. We're going to have to trust Jesus to take care of us. And even if they put us in jail, even if we die, we're still going to follow Jesus. 
That's what happens when you're my kid. You hear these kind of stories. But man, like it's what the Bible says is going to happen. It's where we're it's where we're headed. And uh, you know, it's going to be awesome because at that same time, lots of people are going to turn to Jesus because they're going to realize, man, this whole Mark thing and this whole Antichrist thing is just not working out. They're going to follow Jesus. It's going to be awesome. I said, and then there's going to come a battle where everyone's going to try to get all God's people all at the same time. They're going to meet in this valley called Armageddon or 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 um, a ghetto. And um, <laughs> that's the Hebrew term. I'm sorry. It's I'm a, anyway. But before everybody gets annihilated by all the by all the people that don't love Jesus, God's going to tell an angel to go down. He's a huge angel. He's going to put one foot on one mountain and one foot on another mountain. He's going to grab a trumpet gonna blow so loud and the sky is just gonna part and Jesus is gonna come down on a white horse isn't that awesome man who loves horses <laughs> and when he comes down when we see him those of us that are following him he's gonna let us fly like we're gonna fly up and meet him like in the air we're gonna be saved we're gonna go to heaven and those who don't follow him they're gonna they're gonna cry out for what they call the wrath of the lamb they're they're going to say hide us. They're going to ask for mountains to fall on them because they'd rather be crushed by stones than to face the God that they hated. And it's going to be sad and it's going to be wonderful all at the same time. And then God's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes because we're going to see the destruction and he's going to have to say, it's all right. Everything's good. He's going to make a new heaven, a new earth. We're going to live with him forever. It's just fun just thinking about that, isn't it? It's kind of different. That's why we hold on to the Bible, because it tells us what's coming. It tells us where we're, where we're headed. It tells us who wins. That God is ultimately victorious, and his enemy and the devil is destroyed. And the Antichrist gets what's coming to him. And justice wins in the end. And so I encourage you to read your Bible. I encourage you to read about what's coming. I encourage you to read what's happened. The greatest thing that's happened that Jesus has come and died and paid a price for you and I to come into communion with him and to escape the awful things that are coming on the earth, to escape it and to, and to live with him forever. That's the greatest news. So if you'd like to receive him today, or let's just bow our heads and close our eyes right now. Let's just take just a moment and, and, and I, I want to give you an opportunity to receive him into your heart and to begin this journey with him. Begin a journey of faith, begin a journey of hope, Begin a journey of defeating the enemies in your life, the giants in your life. 